My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to the Migration Podcast. Approximately a third of Singapore's active labor force is non-resident, meaning they are neither Singapore citizens nor permanent residents. Of those, only a small portion are so-called foreign talent, meaning skilled workers and professionals in white-collar jobs. The majority are foreigners employed in the construction industry, in shipyards or in the service sector, such as domestic work in people's homes. Much of Singapore's shiny skyscrapers, public housing and world-class infrastructure was built by foreign workers on low wages. Many women in Singapore have found the freedom to venture into better paying jobs outside the home because the burden of domestic work has shifted to women from low-income countries. In this episode, my associate producer, Mamta Sachan Kumar, speaks to John Gee about the continuing struggles to maintain foreign workers' rights and well-being in a country that so dearly relies on their labor. With Mamta, John speaks about his experiences as a practitioner. John, thank you for agreeing to share your thoughts on the Migration Podcast. For nearly two decades now, if I'm not wrong, you've worked extensively with Transient Workers Count 2, also known as TWC2, which is a local advocacy group for migrant worker rights in Singapore. And you were formerly its president as well. If I'm not wrong, it was from 2007 to 11. That's right. Uh, to be clear, migrant workers in this context, for the sake of uh, clarity for all who are listening, uh, would be individuals contracted largely from developing countries in the Asian region who take on low-wage labor in Singapore's construction and domestic sectors, uh, predominantly speaking. That's right. Could you share about the kind of work that TWC2 does, not just on its own accord, but also relative to other organizations in the local advocacy scene? So we have HOME, we have uh, MWC and others as well. And what your experience has been since you began? Well, TWC2 has existed uh, now for, well, 18 years plus. Um, I mean, we go back a bit further because there was another organization earlier which had a similar similar initials, uh, the Working Committee 2. I was involved from the planning stages in 2002. And uh, at first, we just focused on domestic workers and it was intended to have a limited campaign. But in 2004, we then decided that we needed something longer term and we extended our work to cover all, all low paid migrant workers. You could say it's just the workers who are on work permits, but we found that there are workers who are officially on better standards, but in fact, they are paid at work permit levels. So um, that's what we what we do. And um, we, what we try to do is to combine three different kinds of work and we do uh, advocacy, research and what we call direct services. And so a lot of NGOs, of course, focus on direct services. They deliver services which uh, do are an immediate value. To, for example? Uh, well, for example, workers who have pay disputes, uh, maybe abused workers, people who have medical problems, and for one reason or another, their employers are not ensuring that they get the medical help that they need. People who may face uh, questions over their status in Singapore. Maybe they've overstayed. Maybe there's another issue. I mean, we have encountered workers whose employers cancel their work permits without the workers knowing. So... So there are workers who need very immediate assistance. And, and we have a food program as well, which is one of the most ambitious programs that we run. In fact, it takes up, usually, most years, it takes up the majority of our budget. And this is for workers who uh, are not housed by their employers 
when they're in dispute and they're allowed to stay in Singapore, but they have no income. They have no means of, of staying alive. And so we thought one of the, since we can't provide them with accommodation, it's simply too expensive, we can at least make sure they get a meal. And so that's how the food program began in 2008. Is there no government regulation that would support them in terms of like even just a menial allowance while they're in that influx state with their status in dispute? No, there isn't, uh, because the law says that the employer it has to support the worker while the dispute goes on. Mm -hmm. And so he's supposed to provide accommodation and supposed to provide food. But many workers tell us that they're afraid of staying in the, in the employer-provided accommodation. They talk about gangsters, by which they mean ruffians who are employed working for the employer who will come and beat them up and they'll try to mm. get them to withdraw their claim or simply to go home without pursuing the claim. And so they, they flee the employer-provided accommodation mm. and um, they, they maybe live with a friend who's not in, in such accommodation. Uh, some of them uh, sleep rough. And in fact, our initiative started when we found out that there were thousands of workers on any day of the week who were sleeping outside. Uh, maybe in a, a void deck, mm. in a car park, mm. uh, on pavements even. You know, there are, there are employers who simply want the problem to go away when they have a dispute. They don't want to be made to pay up the salary that's due or to, to provide medical assistance for a worker. And uh, so that's an ongoing problem. So, so we, we provide those services, but unlike a lot of organizations that are focused on direct service provision, we say that the most important part of our work is the advocacy because what we want to do is to solve the problems. We don't want the problem to arise mm. in the first place. It's much better that workers don't face not being paid and, and don't face all these difficulties. And of course, once you, when you're doing the direct service work, you then learn about the, the workers' problems. So, so these are, this is a way that those advocacy and direct services are linked. And research, of course, fills a space in between that because it enables us to stand back a little and to undertake research both at, of um, a sort of general qualitative level, but also to when we need to speak to workers, to speak to them and to fill out what we might derive from documentary research, to put those two things together. Considering how these all go hand in hand, that the direct services informs um, the research, then pushes for advocacy work that's well informed in terms of all the research and analysis that you've done to make it more convincing argument in front of the authorities. Have you observed any kind of progress through your efforts over the almost two you know, decades that you've been involved in this? Hmm. We've seen some changes. Uh, for example, uh, workers uh, these days are supposed to have paper which tells them about the conditions of their employment when they come to Singapore. So they get a copy of their in-principle approval. And uh, so they, they should be informed about how much they're going to be paid, for example. And uh, they uh, have a, um, a wage slip now. Okay. It, which they <laughs> never had a wage slip. They didn't used to have wage slips. And uh, there's still no minimum wage, though. There's, no, there's no minimum wage. But what the wage slip is supposed to say is, is what their rate of pay should be, uh, overtime rates, and what they're actually getting paid. So this means that if you, you get a certain amount of money and it doesn't correspond to the pay slip, you should, in principle, be able to raise the issue and have mm -hmm. some evidence. Um, and what we saw as a process uh, would also involve paying money into bank accounts 
accounts because, you, of course, you can give somebody an envelope with money in it. It might not be the same money as on the payslip. Mm. And if they feel disempowered, they may not argue over it. So paying money into a bank account would be, if you like, the last stage of this process. And we found that it was, it was quite hard to get this until COVID-19 came along. And then, of course, it seemed very evident to the Ministry of Manpower that instead of having workers being given cash, in an envelope by hand mm. and with communication between employers and workers, which might spread COVID-19, it was better to have money paid into banks. Right. So finally, the argument for right. bank accounts. So was... the pandemic has sort of ironically triggered uh, a more sound means of, of ensuring that the, the payment actually goes through. Yes. So now if you're an employer who wants to cheat the worker, you now have to get the worker to part with the money after you've paid the worker, which is a bit harder to do. Mm. But we did. We, we, we have heard of a couple of examples of employers approaching workers who've been paid during the COVID-19 outbreak, who've said, well, of course, you've got to give me X amount of this money back after the outbreak. No. Yes. <laughs> so they're really trying it on. I doubt that the workers will cooperate. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, leading up from this point uh, where, you know, you've said like it's one thing for it to be sort of written out legislation-wise or in principle, it's a different story to enforce it and make sure it's happening. Yes. Um, how do you reconcile this with the most recent research effort of the research team of TWC2 mm. where you released a report, an extensive report on recruitment fee concerns mm. that you've been working on for the yes. last few years? Yes. The enforcement is very difficult indeed. I mean, all we can do is to make it more difficult for people to avoid paying what workers are due and to observe the the, the rules about uh, kickbacks and so on. Getting workers good information is part of that, if they know what their rights are supposed to be. But of course, they still find themselves in a position when they arrive in Singapore, where an employer can say, well, if you won't accept this, I'm going to send you home. And then they may feel stuck with it. At the moment, I think we've made some progress on the Singapore side, but what we need to do is to get a bit more cooperation in countries of origin. I mean, for example, we know that for domestic workers, according to Philippines law, they're not supposed to pay anything for their own recruitment in the Philippines. Um, and in Singapore, the maximum they're supposed to pay is, is two months' salary. But when we speak to Filipino workers, some of them are only paying that much. But there are still workers who are paying six or seven months' salary. So somebody is getting the money out of them. Yes. And the home country agency and the work, the agency in Singapore tend to cooperate, in, whether directly or indirectly, with one saying, well, no, it's the other one. They're the ones who are asking for the money, not us. Mm. And so there is still a problem. With the male workers... Uh, the situation is even more um, confused and uh, difficult to, to understand. Workers can be charged money for recruitment. They can be charged money for going to training centres, for doing exams and so on. And although there's been some effort to, uh, to counter this, it does seem that there's a lot of vested interests in countries of origin in keeping things as they are. How do you see um, the roles of the state, like the Singapore state in this instance, also perhaps the, the role of the state in the country of origin, as well as the role played by uh, advocacy groups such as TWC to, to relieve this, the concerns about this matter? 
Well, it should be possible both in Singapore and in countries of origin to centralise recruitment. One, one suggestion is that you actually could actually have online recruitment, direct recruitment by the Singapore employer of workers in the country of origin because nowadays so many people have mobile phones and access to the internet. It, it, it's possible to do that. And so this would uh, have a big effect in reducing the role of the middlemen. But it's partly a matter of whether a government can be motivated to do something about it and partly a matter of vested interests. Be it actually in, in some countries, the people who have a share in the recruitment industry having more clout with governments than the than the workers themselves and workers and workers are generally not organized to do this before they come they they you know they have very little contact with other workers who who are going over and when they come back it's something that's in their past they no longer feel motivated to do anything about it and in some cases they become recruiters themselves they have oh, an wow. interest yeah. in, in in keeping fees high so um, it's difficult if you have to identify persisting concerns beyond what you've talked about what would they be and do you see social media playing an influential role in facilitating uh, progress on the front of migrant worker welfare for instance a very recent hashtag movement if you want to call it that mm. is humans are not cargo and again you've written about a safer commute uh, with replacing ferry uh, mm. ferrying by lorries with with coaches or buses mm. which we have seen come into action recently <laughs> uh, but um, you know what kind of influence or impact could social media have and uh, what sort of issues would these be these persisting issues that social media could possibly play a role in facilitating to improve i think young people are much more sensitive to injustices in the societies in which they live and they're often willing to pick up on things which uh, maybe older people have accepted. I notice there's a generational attitude between people when they speak to domestic workers. Older ones who usually don't say please and thank you and younger ones who usually do say please and thank you. Right. Now it may be a small thing uh, but Actually, to a worker, it may make a significant difference, particularly yeah. if you come from a society where, you know, good manners are very important. But I think also um, expectations about what you want domestic workers to do. It's very tempting to settle into a situation where you expect them to do everything. If you have, uh, if you like, a toxic attitude towards domestic workers, it's something that your kids absorb. And um, I think uh, younger parents are you're more sensitive about that. They don't they, they they understand that if you live in a society which wants to be anti-racist, which which condemns racism and yet strict treats a whole stratum of people by significantly different standards mm -hmm. and judges them that way, it's very difficult to observe the higher standards in in your enclosed society you know it's one of those things that always seems absurd to me that when when you talk about how in construction chinese workers will get paid more than indian workers who get paid more than bangladeshi workers and you're told that it's to do with with supply and demand or you know it's just it's just it's almost as if it's something that is a custom and it becomes legitimate yet if you if you were to operate a company and pay Chinese Singaporeans more than <laughs> Malay Singaporeans, or more and more than Indian Singaporeans, there would be, there would be an outcry about it. But it's, it's it's perfectly acceptable when it comes to different groups of foreign workers. It's clearly not based on um, qualification or experience. It's just based on nationality. Um, on that note, just to to wrap up the interview, 
most recently, COVID-19 has triggered uh, rather unpleasant encounters in Singapore, and it's given rise to much social media commentary on racism. Mm. So just uh, over a week ago, the Chinese daily Lianhe Zhaobao, it released an article that failed to acknowledge the more deeply historically embedded systemic forms of racism in its you know, sense-making of recent uh, racist encounters. As a parallel, how would you contextualize recent incidences concerning migrant workers within a more broader framework of persisting concerns about their way of being in Singapore? So like, for instance, eight years ago, we had the, the incident in Little India, and then more recently, we had sort of the oversight or neglect of the dorm conditions that mm-hmm. led to an unnecessary outbreak of the virus. We've had uh, long-endured issues about food quality, where the workers' meals are concerned, uh, and then, as you've talked about now, the the dangerous uh, fairing on you know in open back trucks and lorries. Mm-hmm. How would you contextualize sort of that this this ugliness that's bubbling that's been isolated by mass media mm-hmm. on a on national level to to being sort of a very momentous thing that's that's you know a, a, a result of anxiety because of the virus? How would you go beyond that to suggest or connect these sorts of issues that we're seeing to more enduring issues that have long persisted in Singapore? Well, I think at the beginning of the, uh, the, the COVID-19 outbreak, I think a lot of us who work with migrant workers immediately thought of the conditions under which they work and what a, a danger that they, they faced. And the, the reaction, even after the, after the, the, the spread of uh, infection among migrant workers, the response to it at the official level seemed to be uh, we must do something about it in case it affects Singaporeans. <laughs> yes, so it wasn't. It wasn't actually a uh, recognition of the the concerns about their welfare. Rather, what the disruption would mean to say progress on construction sites. Yes, and also whether migrant workers congregating in certain places might mean that they will spread infection to to local people. Whereas, what we should be doing is looking at uh, their their right to protection. Yes, uh, and we should think of um, measures like providing for the health of people in Singapore as being for people in Singapore, not for Singaporeans. Yes. Um, so this is this is, it's it's a different mentality, but we we have to, I think, re-examine how people just make assumptions about migrant workers. It's not simply in some ways uh, overt racist attitudes are easy to tackle than the, than the assumptions that are made. Does this? way that people often have of just disregarding the migrant workers who are around them. One of the things that really struck me years ago with domestic workers was how you, you might find a couple of people discussing a worker in her presence and they might talk about her being stupid and you talk about ways that she has which are, you're, you see as being ignorant. As somebody who was at, at the time new to the country I was quite taken aback by this. I mean, of course, they could hear you speaking. They knew you were using these expressions about them, but somehow it didn't matter. And uh, when you find, say, uh, a, a domestic worker being denied a day off and the employer says, oh, she's here to work, or similar things about male workers as well, that they don't need as much rest time or so on. And they'll, they'll come out with things, well, it's, it's what they're used to in their own country, or it's better than they had in their own country. It's as if the only criterion that counts is, is the money, and money is not the only thing in life. No. Well, I think for a lot of people who've seen Singapore progress over the years and become a richer and more prosperous society, that's something they're saying about their own lives. Money is not the only thing. 
So uh, for, uh, my, for migrant workers, we've got to have a similar consideration for them. Of course, they want more from life than just to, to work and send money home. It, it remains a concern to me that, that despite progress on uh, days off for domestic workers, I would say that probably 35 to 40 percent of domestic workers still don't have regular days off. It's, it, Not at all. I mean, the figures that you, you might see about this are really derived from research which has been based on interviews with workers. And it's possible to reach some workers who don't get days off, but very few of them. And most of the ones who you do reach do not want to be interviewed. They are very reluctant because they're fearful yeah, that their course. employer will find out. So I think it's pro I think that probably it's gone in the, in the years that we've campaigned on this from maybe 60% or so of workers not getting any days off to mm -hmm. perhaps 35 to 40%. So it's an improvement. It right. steps in the right direction, but we're a long way from everyone getting regular days off. Well, thank you, John, uh, for sharing all your thoughts. I think we've we've learned a lot from just listening to your experiences. So appreciate your time for the podcast. Right. Thank, thank you. you. John Gee was TWC2 president from 2007 to 2011. Mamta Sachin Kumar is a PhD candidate at the School of Culture, History and Language at the Australian National University.